Good morning and welcome to worship. We're glad you are here today. This is sort of the last wave before many others of us arrive back on campus. Our opening canticle is hymn number 241 in our Lutheran uh, ELW in the worship book. So we'll sing that and then a protracted moment of silence and then that will be followed by our uh, ability to stand for our invocation and prayer. Please stand for our invocation and prayer. Holy is God, holy, immortal, ever-loving, ever-present, here and now. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come, find refuge in the love of God. We come to worship hungry, hungry for comfort, for love, for a new way of living, for your word. Holy God, in this time of worship, fill us full with your love, your grace, and your peace. Amen. We sing together hymn number 685, verses 1, 2, 3, and 6. Good morning. Happy New Year. New Year, new energy, new life. Dear friends, beyond champagne and celebrations, I want to shed some light on the spiritual dimensions of the new year. Each new year reminds us about life. Here are some thoughts. Life is short. No matter how much you have left, you will not be able to achieve everything you wish to achieve. Nevertheless, you should try. Two, this life is all we have. How can we use it well? Life itself, each day, each breath we take, is a gift from God, the greatest gift you can get. Life is not something to be taken for granted. If we do, we fail to celebrate it. Manners suggest that once you receive a gift, you unwrap it, enjoy it, and then write a thank you letter, right? So you should do with your life. Your life is meaningful. We are not mere accidents of matter created in a random way. We are here because a loving God brought the universe and life and us into existence. God who knows us intimately. God who hears our prayers, believe in us more than we believe in ourselves, who forgive us when we fall, fail, lifts us up when we fall, and gives us strength to 
overcome life's challenges. God gives human life dignity and responsibility. Remember this word, unpleasant, yes, important, responsibility. This God calls us through every life situation. How should we respond? In the Jewish cycle of reading, we begin the book of Exodus, Shemot in Hebrew, which literally name means the names. The book begins by accounting the names of the people who went down to Egypt. Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim, which interprets not only as a geographic place, but also as a metaphor for a narrow, oppressing situation. People may find themselves in Mitzrayim all the time. Now, why is the boring accounting of names so important, you may ask? The answer is that each name represents a person. Each one matters. Every person is a member of a community. Each one was given free will to act and the power to build up or destroy other people. We have names too, you know. We are accountable as well. We can make it or break it, if you will, in a situation of Mitzrayim, a narrow, oppressing situation. We have the capacity to be a bit like Pua, Shifra, Pharaoh's daughter, and even Moses. Here is what I'm talking about. Jacob's sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of Jacob's children and grandchildren was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph and all his brothers died. So did all their children. The people of Israel had many children. The number of them greatly increased. There were so many of them that they filled the land. Then a new king came to power in Egypt. Joseph didn't mean anything to him. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites are far too many for us. Come, we must deal with them carefully. If we don't, there will be even more of them. Then if a war breaks out, they'll join our enemies. They'll fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians put slave drivers over the people of Israel. The slave drivers treated them badly and made them work hard. The Israelites built the cities of Pithom and Ramesses so Pharaoh could store things there. But the worse the slave drivers treated the Israelites, the more the Israelites there the more Israelites there were, so the Egyptians became afraid of them. 
They made them work hard. They didn't show them any pity. The people suffered because of their hard labor. The slave drivers forced them to work with bricks and mud, and they made them do all kinds of work in the fields. The Egyptians didn't show them any pity at all. They made them work very hard. There were two Hebrew women named Shifra and Pua. They helped other women having babies. The king of Egypt spoke to them. He said, you are the ones who help the other Hebrew women. Watch them when they get into a sitting position to have their babies. Kill the boys. Let the girls live. But Shifra and Pua had respect for God. They didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt sent for the women, and he asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The women answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the women of Egypt. They are strong. They have their babies before we get there. So God was kind to Shifra and Pua, and the number of Israelites became even greater. Shifra and Pua had respect for God, so he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave an order to all his people. He said, you must throw every Hebrew baby boy into the Nile River, but let every Hebrew baby girl live. A man and a woman from the tribe of Levi got married. She became pregnant and had a son by her husband. She saw that her baby was a fine child, and she hid him for three months. After that, she couldn't hide him any longer, so she got a basket made out of the stems of tall grasses. She coated the basket with tar. She placed the child in the basket. Then she put it in the tall grass that grew along the bank of the Nile River. The child's sister wasn't very far away. She wanted to see what would happen to him. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile River to take a bath. Her attendants, attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket in the tall grass, so she sent her female slave to get it. And when she opened it, Pharaoh's daughter saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister spoke to Pharaoh's daughter. She asked, do you want me to go and get one of the Hebrew women? She could breastfeed the baby for you. Yes, go. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and feed him for me. I'll pay you. So the woman, took, the woman took the baby and fed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. She said, I pulled him out of the water. That's word for today. Imagine how radical it would be if Ivanka Trump would adopt a DACA student and bring her to the White House.
not so radical and definitely reasonable to assume that we may find ourselves making moral decisions in the coming future. How would we act? Would we risk something to save others? Would we be able be like Shifra and Pua, answering a moral call from God? Would we have the courage to act publicly like Pharaoh's daughter? Would we have the courage to overcome fears of exposure? My rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, reviews the Hebrew Bible through lenses of ethics. Think about it this way. This is a university setting. Genesis and Exodus narratives are humanities repeating course in responsibility. With each narrative, humans develop a deeper sense of responsibility. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve take no responsibility for their actions, blaming the snake. Then Cain and Abel, Cain took responsibility for his actions but did not understand the moral part, the moral responsibility. Noah and the flood generation had to learn what collective responsibility means, how you take care of others, not just yourself and your family. The Tower of Babel, they had to learn that there are moral limits to power we are all accountable to God. Abraham was the first to assume responsibility for his nephew Lot, and then argued with God about the collective responsibility of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Later, we read narratives about the Abrahamic family and descent to Egypt. The hardship in Egypt, its rhyme, and the Exodus story, with examples of responsibility and relapses. We had a lot of those. I invite all of us to reread our sacred texts through lens of responsibility. It would be very interesting read to understand the will of a loving God. Now then, a question for you. What is the most important question regarding responsibility? Anyone? Why me? Yes, you are not alone in this agonizing question. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, Jacob, and even King David felt inadequate, not ready, fearful, without means, speechless. Who am I to say something? Who am I to respond? Why me? There must be more eloquent, 
smart, resourceful people out there who can answer the call. People with more times on their hands, more talent, more money to donate. Not me. I'm just an ordinary person, not a hero. We know of Christian people who saved Jews and other targeted minorities during the Holocaust, taking a risk for endangering themselves and families if caught by the Nazis. We call them righteous among the nations. These people were not saints or ideologists, just ordinary people with an extraordinary willingness to help others. Some of you have heard about the Genovese effect, may heard of the Genovese effect, named after Kitty Genovese, who in 1964 was stabbed to death in New York suburb. Dozens of neighbors heard her cries to help, but none came to rescue. Later, two social scientists, B. Blatton and M.J. Marley, Darley, wanted to explore how that happened to good, normal people. So they staged series of emergencies, such as physical collapse, fire, robbery, burglary, in stores and offices, and came to an astonishing discovery. Ready? In every case, a lone bystander was more willing to intervene and help than a group of bystanders. We fail to respond because we think someone else will or should. In his book, To Heal a Fracture World, Ethics of Responsibility, Rabbi Sachs states that the fundamental moral problem is why me? What connects me to this person in need? What gives me the right or the duty to intervene? Last week, Pastor Scott shared an experience of a distressed woman at the airport trying to get to her flight, speaking a language other than English. Not only she was not helped by the officials, but she was scowled at. After the service, a question was raised. Did anyone say something? At least 10 people witnessed the humiliating moment, and no one responded. Who am I to say something? they all probably thought. Responsibility is the ability to respond. What made Moses, Jeremiah, Amos, and David unique was not superpowers, abilities, 
confidence in self? No. On the contrary, they believed not in themselves, but in the other person, in the cause. For them, injustice was not a fact. It was a call for action, evocation, if you will. They heard and heeded to the cry of human suffering. We are here because God has brought us into being in love and gave us work to do. Each of us has its own personal burning bush realizations. Hearing God's still small voice calling to us to bring a fragment of his presence into other people's life. There is no life without task, no person without a talent, no situation without opportunity, and no moment without God's call to all of us. Amen. Gracious God, you have created us with love. You have given us love. You have called us to love one another. You call us every day and every moment. Help us to hear your call and respond in the most noble way. Amen. <laughs>